and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. So good morning, Bent Tree Church. Uh, for those of you who have, who have not met me, my name is Hal Hudson, and I am our student pastor here at Bent Tree. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today as we worship the Lord on the first Sunday of this new year. Um, Yeah, so thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm very thankful for the pastoral team here at Bentry Church for giving me this opportunity to preach from God's Word this morning. So let's go ahead and jump into God's Word. This morning, we're in Psalm 110, okay? So that's in the book of Psalms, the 110th one. If you don't know where the book of Psalms is, take your Bible and open it right in the middle, That'll get you really close to the book of Psalms. So, yeah, Psalm 110. And please turn there, and if you're able, would you please stand in reverence to God for his written word being read aloud in our midst. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, please stand as I uh, go ahead and pray. <laughs> Dear Lord, thank you so much for uh, bringing all of us here today. I pray just that as I come to speak um, your word, Lord, and just to preach it, um, that you will help me stand, uh, stand aside and let you just... Um, you shine, Lord, and I pray that I will uh, make you the centerpiece, Lord, and that all of us will make you the centerpiece of our lives. In your name, amen. amen. Okay, now you may be seated. So, starting off for the 110th Psalm, there are several things that make this Psalm, uh, or just set this Psalm apart from the rest, okay? So, the first is that this Psalm is the most quoted piece of the Old Testament within the New Testament, meaning that the New Testament writers often would point back to the 110th Psalm when they see the Messiah within the Old Testament. And when they think of a passage that is talking about Jesus, they often come upon the 110th Psalm. Theologian John Calvin noted that the truths stated in the Psalm relate neither to David nor to any other person than the mediator alone. Meaning that the Psalm has to be talking about the Messiah. And that the Jewish people who reject the New Testament can come to agree that Psalm 110 is talking about the Messiah. Now the question has to be asked, how does this Psalm affect us as a Christian? Okay, so thank you all for asking that question. So let's go ahead and jump into the passage again and find out in verse one. Okay, so the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Okay, so the first verse is kind of confusing because it's the Lord is saying to my Lord. Okay, so let me just kind of unpack some things for you. So I have a little chart, 
And in your Bibles, you'll see that Lord, well, the, like the first Lord in the passage is uppercase. Uh, and that it's translated from Yahweh or Adonai. And when they translate it Adonai, they use the vowel points when they are translating Lord with uppercase letters. And then Lord lowercase letters is coming from the na- noun Adonai, but there's no vowel points. Uh, so it's more of a broader term. Uh, yeah, so the Lord with all capitals is referring to Yahweh, which is God the Father. Also, just remember this, I am going to come back, and this will be important later on. Um, and the second Lord with lowercase letters is more of a broad term that is used to describe a master or a Lord. So the Lord with lowercase letters is more of a broad term. In this specific instance, though, the Lord with lowercase is referring to a descendant of David, who the Lord with uppercase letters will make the Lord's enemy, so the God, the Father, Yahweh's uh, enemies, their footstool. The lowercase Lord is referring to someone of Davidic descent and not David himself. So, who is someone that is worthy to be called Lord and of Davidic descent and the Lord will raise up? How can a descendant of David be greater than David? And so much that David recognizes his descendants as Lord. Okay, so we see this. Uh, the prophet Nathan is tell, tells David in 2 Samuel 3, 7, 16, sorry. Uh, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It is here in scripture that we know that through David's lineage, God the Father, uppercase Lord, promised David that the line of the Messiah will come through David. David was told and he was able to recognize God's plan that through David's lineage, God would establish not just an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom that will last forever. The enemies that are referred to are the Lord's, so capital Lord's enemies. And the use of making his enemies a footstool is a commonly used term to show that someone is victorious. So here in this passage, in the first verse, we see that the father is putting the son at his right hand. And then the son is making the father's enemies his footstool. Okay, so let's go ahead and continue on to verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Okay, so in verse 2, we are now moving from the heavenly throne room down to Zion, which is Jerusalem. Okay, so this is depicting Christ, not at his first coming, which we just spent this past Christmas season celebrating and um, looking towards Jesus' first coming where he came as a suffering servant, but Christ in this coming that the 110th Psalm is talking about is coming not as a suffering servant, um, but instead Christ coming as king, which is the coming that we as Christians and believers are currently awaiting. Let's continue on to verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. So in verse 3, there are two sections of the verse. The first shows how people will offer themselves up freely to fight for the army of the Lord. This is not something that is forced or Jesus is coercing his followers to do, but all of those Sorry, I didn't read all verse 3. From the womb of the morning, the dew 
of your youth will be yours. That's the second part. I'll get back to that. Um, but all of those who believe in Christ as their king will take up arms and fight against the enemies of the Lord willingly. The second part. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This king, known as Christ, is coming not from the earthly realms, but from the heavenly realms. Christ is coming not from earth, but from heaven. Okay, so we just spent time celebrating the Christmas season and Christ's first coming where he came as a baby. Okay, and, but before that, Christ, he did not start to exist once he became a baby in his first coming. But Christ has always been. Christ has always been before he came down as a, as a man. Okay, moving on to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 4 shows us that the Lord will not and never will change his mind. Okay, this is one of the attributes of God known as immutability. Okay, so here's the definition for immutability. You should write this down. Immutability, the attribute of God referring to his unchangeable nature. The attribute of God referring to his unchangeable nature. The attribute of God referring to his unchangeable nature. Immutability is God being faithful to his promises. God never has or will never change his mind. We can get to know God and have a relationship with him through studying the scriptures. Okay, And we know that he will never change his mind. One way to look at immutability and just trying to understand it is looking at my history, my personal history of studying sports teams. Okay, So when I was growing up in Michigan, I was a Detroit Lions fan. When I was born, it was predestined to be. There was no other choices. It wasn't a conversation. I couldn't be like, hey, what about this team? No, it was, you're a Lions fan. That's it. Okay? But then when I got older, I moved away to college. I went to Chicago. Once I stepped foot in Chicago, I became a Bears fan. Bear down. Fast forward four or five years later, I'm now living in Colorado. And now I'm a Broncos fan. Right on. So, just in a matter of six to seven years, I have changed my mind on what football team I care for three different times. Now, I doubt that God would take to the liking of any football teams, but if he did, God would never change. He would always stick with one team. God's knowledge and his character go far above what any of us with our small human minds can fathom. But God will never change. He has always been and will continue to always be the same. God will never change his mind. God will always be faithful to his promises. Okay, so if you are still questioning or uncertain about who uh, who Psalm 110 is referring to, uh, let me point out a little bit more on why uh, Psalm 110 is pointing towards Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Psalm 110 4b reads, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord coming from the line of David is one thing, okay? You know, like coming down the line, eventually another king will rise up, Okay. 
But the psalm talks of a future Davidic kingdom where, sorry, um, a psalm talks about a future Davidic kingdom where there will be someone that delivers Israel. The deliverance that Israel needs is not one from their enemies. The deliverance that the people of Israel need is one from their sin. Here we have someone who is coming from the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm sure all of you are wondering, what is the order of Melchizedek? Well, thank you for asking. So let's all turn to Genesis 14, 18 uh, and see. So Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. He is a priest of God most high. Melchizedek is a priest of God most high. So here we have someone who is coming from the order of Melchizedek. This means that this person will be a priest of the God most high. Just as Melchizedek was divinely appointed by God to be the priest of the God most high, Christ has been divinely appointed as the priest of the God most high. The line of Salem is not one that passes from generation to generation. This is only one that can be appointed divinely by God. This is unlike the priesthood that we see through Israel's history, where Aaron, the brother of Moses, was, was the high priest, and all the priests after him came through his line of being a Levite. So the order of the priest in Israel's time was one of lineage and not one of calling or appointment. Okay, so in Hebrews 7.11, the author raises an interesting question. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The author here is pointing out that if perfection, if the law could be fulfilled through the priesthood established under Aaron, why is there a need for a priest after the order of Melchizedek? It is because the people of Israel's sacrifices was not enough to pay for their sin. It didn't matter how many times they would take a lamb, how many times they would take an ox, how many times they would take anything to sacrifice the Lord, that payment would never be enough for their sins. Okay, so during my college years, I spent some time studying and I learned about something that is known as LSD. No, I'm not referring to the drug. Okay, it is instead referring to law plus sin equals death. Okay, so LSD. Law plus sin equals death. This is another thing you should write down. Law plus sin equals death. Law plus sin equals death. The law of Moses plus our sin only leads to death. And that if the only way to heaven is through the law, that we will not end up heaven, we will instead only result in our death. The law reveals our sin and that there is no way that we can come to live a perfect life according to the law. We can't. 
thousands, millions of humans, billions of humans have tried to live a life perfect according to the law. And just because the law has been revealed to us does not mean that we are destined for death. It is through Christ, through it is through Christ that the equation law plus sin equals death is changed. It is his death that has paid for our sin. Christ fulfilled the law because we are unable to. It is because of Christ that we are freed from the law. Okay, so we see this in Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore no, now, sorry, I'm just going to start over. (laughs) There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for, and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 8 is talking about how those in Christ Jesus are released from the law. That if we are in Christ, if we have accepted Christ as our Savior, we are no longer held to the law because Christ fulfilled the law. God sent his own son to fulfill the law. The only person physically able to fulfill the law came and fulfilled the law for each and every one of us. Christ, being of the order of Melchizedek, being truly God and truly man, was able to come down and be the mediator between God and man. This is only something that Jesus Christ was only able to do because he is both truly God and truly man. So, after verse 4, I would like to point out that the only person Psalm 110 is referring to is Christ Jesus. There is no one else who is a part of the, of the Davidic line and has also been a, divinely appointed by God as a priest of the God Most High. Let's continue on Psalm 110 uh, verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So we now have reached an important part in the text. Okay, I know you all have been waiting for this. We need you to go back and look at our chart from earlier, where we have Lord, all capitals, Yahweh or Adonai with the vowel points, and Lord, lowercase, uh, with Adonai with no vowel points. Okay? So, throughout the psalm, Lord, with all capitals, has been used to describe Yahweh, the Father, and Lord, lowercase letters, has been used to describe the Son. The point of interest most likely does not show up in your English Bibles in verse 5. It doesn't show up in mine, okay? My Bible translates Lord with lowercase letters. The reason for this is to make a distinction between the Father and the Son, okay? But this is where it gets crazy. The word that is used for Lord, lowercase letters, in verse 5 is none other than the word Adonai with vowel points, So, going back here, the Lord 
is at your right hand. So the Lord, Jesus, is being defined with the same word, the same noun, Adonai, with vowel points, as the Father himself. Okay? And the Lord will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So here we have reference to the Messiah, but it is coming with the use of the Most High God. This means that God did not suddenly become a Trinitarian God when Jesus was born. But in fact, the God of David here is being described as both Father and Son. Okay, God, going back to the immutability, he doesn't change. God has been, has always been, and will always be a Trinitarian God. Okay, so as believers, we believe in a God that is three in one. Okay, so this is complex stuff. And just show of hands, how many of you struggle understanding the Trinity? Okay, I know I do. Okay, it's a complex understanding that we as mere humans in our small human minds, sorry, I keep bashing on our, how small our minds are, can not grasp or understand what the Trinity is. We need to have faith. Part of our faith in Christ as our Savior is having faith in, in his aspects and in him and the aspects that make him truly God. Now, the early church developed a way to help them articulate what they believe, specifically when it comes to looking at God as a Trinitarian God. Okay, so there's different versions of the different, sorry, uh, and what they developed was creeds. And it was just a short paragraph that they would use to help describe what they believe and just define this is what we believe. So today we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, and there's different ones out there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. Uh, yeah. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of the heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Apostles' Creed helps believers to know what exactly we believe, especially when it comes to the Trinity and understanding the relationship between the Godhead. So the Godhead is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when you are struggling to grasp the Trinity and struggling to really define what you truly believe as a Christian, I would urge you to turn towards the Apostles' Creed. This has been used for over 1,500 years by Christians to state, here's what we believe. That we believe in a Trinitarian God and that Psalm 110 is also pointing us to Jesus being truly God. Okay, back to our text in verse 6. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Here we see in this verse that Christ will execute judgment among the nations. Christ will win, okay? And no one's even going to come close 
There will be no second place. Christ and his army will be the only ones left on this triumphant day. Okay? Christ will win. And if you're on the other team, I'm sorry, but he will. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Let's jump in. Verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this last verse differs from the rest of the psalm. It ends with the Messiah, with Jesus, in a refreshing way, drinking from the brook. The fighting is done, and his enemies have been defeated. He can now sit back and be refreshed. So, what does this mean for us? What does this psalm have to do with us living our Christian lives? This psalm shows us that Christ is king. Christ is the Messiah, and it is no, no surprise that he is. This passage shows the reader that Christ will come not once, but twice. Christ's first coming was that of a suffering servant. One of Christ's priesthood where he came as truly God and truly man, being our mediator, being the divinely appointed priest to God, coming on behalf of humanity. This psalm shows us as Christians how the Old Testament is not a standalone piece of history about everything that happened before we got to Jesus. The whole Bible is important. There's a reason you have 66 books and not just 27. Okay, From Genesis to Revelation, God's word is being revealed to his people, to us. Through the Old Testament, we are shown how humanity is unable to attain a relationship with God. Okay, We are unable to uphold the law. Law plus sin equals death. When we take the law and our sin, all that comes is death. But it is through Christ and his, his work on our, and his work coming to fulfill the law and die on the cross for us that we can have a relationship with him. The Old Testament points towards humanity's failure and the New Testament shows our restoration through Christ. So today, January 1st, the day of starting new things, working out more, and reading my Bible more every day. Let, let's make some things real, specifically when it comes to reading our Bible. Bentry is starting a read through the Bible in a year plan, okay? So this year, if you haven't signed up, sign up. You still have time. Still have time after today. You're just going to need to play a little catch up, but don't brush through your Old Testament. When, you spent, when our reading plan has us spending time in the Old Testament, don't brush it off. Spend time of it. Spend time in it. I want to challenge each and every single one of you to look for Christ within the Old Testament. When you read your Old Testament, find where the Old Testament is pointing towards the redemptiveness, pointing towards Jesus, and underline that verse. Okay, so if you haven't done so already, Psalm 110, the entire psalm is talking about Jesus, and it's talking about his second coming. So underline Psalm 110, that is pointing towards Jesus. This was giving David hope, who lived a thousand years before Christ even came. He was able to have hope that God was going to send someone who would establish a king forever. The whole Bible was pointing towards the coming of Christ and his reign over the world.
The Messiah in Psalm 110 is pointing towards Christ. Okay, and now here's where the rubber really meets the road. We need to profess that Jesus is Lord. And we need to accept him into our hearts as our Christ. We need to accept Christ as our mediator. That he went on our behalf to the Father to pay for our sins. It is up to us to recognize that his death on the cross is the only thing that can pay for our sins. The entire Old Testament is pointing towards God, God's redemptive plan through Christ. The book was 1,500 years in the making, and it is no surprise that God has connected everything as perfectly as he has. So when we look at the Old Testament and how it's pointing towards Jesus and pointing towards the New Testament, how does your personal life point towards Jesus? Is everything you're doing pointing towards Christ as your king? Does what you do between Monday and Saturday point to Jesus as Savior? Are you trying to point towards Christ as your Savior to everyone that you interact with? So this year, I, I want to challenge all of you to have your lives professing Christ and have everything you do pointing towards Christ as your Savior. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for your word to us and just that, how intricately you plan for, uh, for your son to come and be our savior and that you knew from the very beginning that Christ was going to come and die on the cross and be the mediator between you and man, Lord. Thank you so much for that and thank you, Lord, for everything you do in our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.